Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. What can we do about English spelling? Professor John Wells from the Speech, Hearing and Phonetic Science Research Department at University College London discusses whether we are wasting time on irregular spellings and holding our children back with spelling tests. Thank you. Ten days ago, Saturday morning, I had to get up very early because they wanted me on BBC Breakfast Television. And the car came at six o'clock, so I had to get up by 5.30, ready to be on the television to discuss the burning issue of Birmingham City Council and whether it had acted right in removing the apostrophe from the name of such places as St Paul's Square a matter of uh, enormous importance, of course, justifying one spending hours and hours in the television studio just to talk about it for two or three minutes. (laughs) However, that's not the height of my fame. I was also denounced by David Cameron at the Conservative Party conference because, in his view, based on a garbled report of what I had said, he thought I was guilty of dumbing down or advocating dumbing down education, which, to put it on record, I'm not. But it's clear that apostrophes in place names are in some fair confusion. There are two little bits of the London tube map. On the left, you can see Cannons Park at the top and Queen's Park at the bottom, one without an apostrophe and one with an apostrophe. On the right, you can see the adjacent stations, Barons Court and Earls Court, exemplifying exactly the same problem. So those who, you know, denounce modern youth for uh, failing to know the rules and follow the rules, uh, perhaps have some explaining to do here uh, in long-established place names in London. And, of course, it's not just in London, around the country. I've just listed one or two, like St Albans, St Helens, St Ives, St Leonard's on Sea, all of which are clearly possessives in their origin, but are normally spelt without an apostrophe. I might mention also St Kitts in the West Indies, which has an official name, St Christopher, which nobody uses at all, and everybody calls it St Kitts, and nobody puts an apostrophe in it. So, another television programme that I had to appear on had sent an 11-year-old girl round with a camera and a large uh, thumb or finger, I think finger it was, on the end of a stick, which she took and placed against appending, uh, offending apostrophes around the place. So she would go and do this at Harrods and at Hamley's and at Dixon's and at Boots. Actually, I hadn't realised that Boots was founded by a Mr. Boot. I'd just always taken this as a name that you, you know, don't analyse further. Let's buy it at Boots. But evidently that's what it was. In origin it was possessive. And here we have Sainsbury's as a sort of stick out for still having an apostrophe in their name where all the rest have abandoned it. Well, what of course is ridiculous is expecting teenagers to learn off by heart which names have to have an apostrophe and which names don't. And I would also mention surnames like Roberts or Matthews or Adams, which again are clearly possessive in their origin, but which 
nobody would dream of writing with an apostrophe. So uh, I'm spending sort of quite a bit on the apostrophe in this talk, more than I meant to, because it's what's been in the news just recently, and I thought I ought to explain my take on all of it. Here are the official rules that we were all taught at school. We have a two-case system in English, two overtly different cases, the general case or the nominative and the possessive case. And we have two numbers, singular and plural. And with an ordinary regular noun like boy, it changes to show possessive or to show plural. And in speech, it changes in the same way. It moves from being boy to being boys. But we're supposed, in writing, to distinguish these three possibilities by putting an apostrophe before the S for the possessive singular boys, meaning of the boy. No apostrophe at all for the general plural, boys. And an apostrophe after the S for the possessive plural, the boys, meaning of the boys. The easy way to get a hold on this is to consider irregular nouns like child, because there we have child, childs, children, children's, and they're all pronounced differently as well as being spelt differently. So that, that gives you a clue which way to go. And then when you have a, a boy's sports day, everything immediately becomes clear, doesn't it? As you might say, it's child's play. Why don't we say children's play? I don't know, but that one clearly is treated as singular. I don't know what to do about a sports day. Is it, is it a day of sport or a day of sports? Or is this just an ordinary compound noun like a luggage label, sports day? You can justify any of those. And, well, what I infer from this is that we need to relax a bit about apostrophes. It's not the end of the world if we uh, have a bit of disagreement about them. And indeed, I would go further, which is what uh, upset David Cameron in suggesting that we might really think about very largely abolishing the apostrophe because it doesn't do anything useful. Well, the case, of course, against that is the one set out in the Guardian style book. Sorry about that private eye joke. You all recognize it, I'm sure. Uh, this is what it says in the, in the Guardian style book. Don't let anyone tell you that apostrophes don't matter and that we'd be better off without them. Consider these four phrases, each of which means something different. My sister's friend's investments, okay, one sister and one friend. My sister's friend's investments, one sister but lots of friends. My sister's friend's investment, more than one sister and several, f oh, sorry, one friend, yes. And my sister's friend's in investments where we've got more than one sister and more than one friend. Well, yeah. The problem, of course, is that in speech, they all sound the same. So what I would say is if you're writing, don't, for goodness sake, rely on your readers to interpret this kind of apostrophization correctly. Rather, do just as you would do in speech and recast the sentence to make it clear what you mean. And if you really mean my three sisters and each of their single friend's investments, well then... You can say that. If you mean <coughs> that I have one sister and lots of friends, well, then you can reword it similarly. My sister Anne and her friends have got some investments, and this is what they say. Because very few adults actually are sufficiently on top of the apostrophe rules to be able with certain to 
uh, with certainty to interpret this kind of difference. I'm sure you're all absolute experts in this and you can manage. Uh, indeed, I think I know the rules myself. But I think you'd be very ill-advised as a writer to rely on your reading public to know and to interpret them appropriately. Just as when we speak, we need to make ourselves clear, I think we do need, when we write, to make ourselves clear, and playing games with apostrophes is not a way to make yourself clear. Of course, the rules are made that much trickier by the fact that we have these possessive pronouns in which we're not supposed to use apostrophes. So what's mine, what belongs to me is mine, what belongs to you is yours, no apostrophe required. What belongs to him is his, what belongs to her is hers, and what belongs to it is its. Lots and lots and lots of people get this wrong. <coughs> and they say it with an unwanted apostrophe when they mean of it. Ours, theirs, whose. Lots of people get that wrong as well and say whose umbrella is this? Who apostrophe S, that's not what it's supposed to be. Because there you're supposed to use apostrophes only for its when it's a contraction, meaning it is or it has, and likewise when whose is a contraction, meaning who is or who has. So it's quite difficult to get your mind around all of this. Those of us who are good at school and have no, no problem learning to read and write, okay, we manage, we get on top of it. Those who are not so good at reading and writing typically are lost. And we have to ask ourselves as a society whether it's satisfactory to have thousands, millions of adult speakers of English stigmatised, condemned, regarded as uneducated because they fail to get all these little details absolutely fixed in their heads. My view is that it would be better to simplify things so that uh, we don't have to burden learners with all of this nonsense. When I say, well, let's, let's get rid of the apostrophe entirely, of course, there are various objections that can reasonably be made. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, 100 years ago, he said, let's get rid of the apostrophe, and if you look in the, the forewords or the texts of his plays and so on, or other stuff that he wrote, you'll see that he was as good as his word, and he didn't allow apostrophes. It does lead to one or two problems in contractions, of course, because, uh, well, heel looks like hell, she'll looks like shell, we'll looks like, we'll looks like well, uh, she'd and shed. Weed and wed. So one can see that there's a case for retaining those contraction apostrophes. It's not the only way round. I mean, there would be another possibility of just putting a space in so that wheel is written we space double L. Uh, then that would make it clear that it's not well. Or we could keep apostrophes in contractions. Here are some more. The uh, <coughs> I'm set, the I've set, weave. Each of these is a possible confusion. Okay, weave, when you weave a story or weave a piece of textile, that's spelt as a single word with no apostrophe, of course, whereas weave, meaning we have. That's not really an enormous problem for people. But there are great problems in the, one in the, the ones in the purple boxes down there at the bottom. 
lots of literate adults get confused, and semi-literate adults always get confused about the two kinds of its, the two or, in fact, three kinds of there, because there's the they are there, with the apostrophe, there's the there belonging to them, T-H-E-I-R, and there's the there in that place, T-H-E-R-E. And there's also the existential there, there's something I want to tell you, which is none of those. And that's a real problem for learners of English spelling. Uh, Well, these are exhaustive lists. I think the point is made. We needn't go on looking at these. There are various other cases in which we use apostrophes in uh, English. What do they say on uh, on just a minute? English as we know and use it. Right. Uh, A clock... Focusful sailors among us, if we know this word, <coughs> uh, rock and roll. Well, in each of these cases, we've got a so-called contraction again, and that's rock and roll. It's supposedly of the clock and the forecastle, is it, originally of the, of the ship. There are other places where we sort of feel we need to mark a border, a boundary, a limit, So if we talk about A's and B's and C's, many people feel they want to put an apostrophe in. Speaking about the 1960s. Uh, Now, my style book for the publishers I work for tells me not to use apostrophes there, so I don't. It's trickier when we come to ifs and buts. That, too, it's uh, the recommendation is not to use those apostrophes. But usage is clearly uh, divided. And, yes, there are various cases where we've got general agreement, we don't use apostrophes, sports days and sports cars, and those written solid without a space like beeswax and batsman. Been quite a change over my life in that sort of word. When I was a boy, words like beeswax were written with a hyphen. And we used to get worried about whether it was the wax of one bee or the wax of several bees, or we're not worried, it's just bees and wax. Now... There's been a big move. I can see this, you know, looking at books published 40, 50 years ago. All those hyphens we used to have have now been abolished. Some of them have been replaced by nothing at all. We write the word solid. Others have been replaced by word spaces. We write it as two words. But we have very clearly reduced the use of hyphens very significantly uh, over my life. And it's, uh, you know, something that's happens terribly gradually. Nobody gets worried about it. Nobody makes a big issue of it. But it's, it's something that's different. A hundred years ago, of course, it was even more different. Or perhaps, should we say, 150 years ago. Look at newspapers from the late 1880s and so on, and you see things like Oxford Street written with an, a hyphen. Well, that hyphen has silently disappeared, and we now write Oxford Street as two words, capital S. It might have gone the other way. We might have ended up like the Germans, where we'd write Oxfordstrasse or Oxford Street in one word, solid. People often go on about how German has these enormous long words. You know, Nonsense. German words are just like English words. The point is they have a spelling rule that says you write compound nouns solid. In English, we, our spelling rule is we write these as several different words. So if we have a holiday trip, we write it as two words in English. If you have a Ferienausflug in German, you write it as a single word. But the grammar, really, is exactly the same in the two languages. That's because people get terribly hung up on writing, on the writing system. One of the things that linguists, in the sense of students of linguistics, 
all have to emphasise is that language is not basically writing. Speaking doesn't consist of saying letters aloud. Writing is in some sense secondary, speech is in some sense primary. Well, there are some greengrocers' apostrophes for you, so you can have fun condemning them. Yes. (laughs) And uh, it seems to be particularly cases where the word ends in a vowel, a vowel letter, which many names of uh, vegetables do, of course, and that's why bananas and avocados and even tomatoes and potatoes do tend to be particularly susceptible to the greengrocer's apostrophe. Though that's not really an excuse for the fish guys down at the bottom there. Well, what this is, of course, is people who are not terribly confident in their literacy not wanting to make a mistake and putting an apostrophe in just to be sure because they think that people who know about these things use lots of apostrophes. (coughs) And they end up, of course, with people like us poking fun at them. And life is not fair. So what happens if we were to abolish the possessive apostrophe? We can start from the general principle that I've already mentioned, that if we pronounce things the same, why shouldn't we be allowed to spell them the same? Particularly when it's the same word, really. I am uh, not so naive as to suppose that this wouldn't bring certain problems in its wake, though. First of all, there are things like the plurals of nouns spelt with a Y at the end, because when we make the plural of city and we change it to cities, we change the spelling to I-E-S, as you know. And when we have the possessive form, the city's, I don't know, uh, decisions or something, and the city's locations, when it's more than one city's, there, it's like the child-children's thing, we have a difference in, visual difference in writing between those three kinds of cities. Again, no difference in speech, notice, And so you might argue that since we don't need it in speech, we can get on without it, even in writing. But the question is which of the forms you would take as the basic one. It gets worse when we have stems ending in an S or another sibilant sound. Uh, Because, well, cross, the crosses of the cross. Cross is the plural of cross, several crosses, and of the crosses, well, we write them all differently with the apostrophe in different places. In some of these cases, we also have a problem about speech. We're not quite sure what to do. What do we call the novels written by Dickens? Do we call them Dickens' novels, or do we call them Dickens's novels? Most people say Dickens's novels, but there is a kind of, dare I say, literary affectation that leads some people to call them Dickens' novels. Uh, It's a more serious question, though. There's also the matter of, do we say Jesus' love or Jesus' love, Moses' laws or Moses' law, and so on. Indeed, more recently, Jonathan Ross's behaviour. If we were to abolish his apostrophe, we'd end up with three S's in a row, which looks really rather odd. So there are decisions that would have to be made before you just... uh, light-heartedly get rid of the possessive apostrophe. The general point I think I want to make, though, is that there are two approaches, rather than throwing up your hands in horror at people getting the apostrophe wrong. 
either somehow we've got to improve education so that people learn how to use them in the approved way, or we can change the rules and say people don't need to use them in the approved way. For two centuries, we've been slaving away trying to teach people to use them. Not much more than two centuries, by the way. Shakespeare didn't use apostrophes. Uh, Our forefathers a few centuries back got on perfectly well without any apostrophes. But anyhow, yes, we have been trying to impart these rules and failing. So, I mean, we succeed with the top, shall we say, 25% of people, the ones who are good at literacy matters. We fail abjectly with the bottom 25% who don't know what it's about. And we've got a sort of middle band of something like half of the adult population who sort of know but aren't quite sure and might get it wrong and ask their friend, is it with an apostrophe or without an apostrophe? Or if their businessmen get their wife to or their secretary to just check this over, would you, and see that it's right? I certainly have plenty of people who come to me and say, would you just have a look at this and make sure it's all right before I print it out? The other possibility then is to change the rules and say, well, no, we don't require this. It's an unnecessary burden on every school child. And what does it give us as a result? What is the advantage of knowing all these rules about apostrophes? I've suggested, really, that very little advantage... And you can compare it with something else that people of my generation had to learn, and that was old money, pounds, shillings and pence. We had to learn to multiply £3.16 and pence by 7. And that was quite difficult, because you had to carry 12s to get pence into shillings, you had to carry 20s to get shillings into pounds. We had to learn that, and it was hard work, and we came out, those, who were, those of us who were good at maths at any rate, being able to do it. Absolutely useless now. Nobody needs to be able to do that. Everybody over a certain age can do it, well, if they're educated, but it's utterly useless knowledge. We don't teach children to do that anymore. And all the other rubbish of imperial units of hundred weights and uh, perches and furlongs and stuff that maybe we learned at school. We got rid of it. We've decimalised our money. We've largely metricated. We haven't quite got there yet, but we've done it very generally. This isn't dumbing down. This is common sense improvement of human life. We're not bound by rules as if they're God-given. We are in charge of things. We can decide what the rules should be. I think this is important with things like apostrophes because I have enormous sympathy for people who find it difficult. And instead of condemning them, what those of us who are good at these things ought to be doing is saying, we don't need this anymore. It's like pounds, shillings and pence. Let's make it easier. It's not dumbing down, it's being sensible. It's like getting a new kitchen fitting a new bathroom in your house. Why struggle with that old plumbing or whatever that was so awful or that? Do you remember twin tub washing machines? Yes. Do you remember dollies and mangles and ringers? Good riddance to all of that. It's gone. We've got something more modern. Let's get rid of the apostrophes in the same way. That's what I say anyhow. Those are, that's just a further reminder that when I was a boy, 
I had to spell today and tomorrow with hyphens. And tonight, they were sort of options at school. Uh, we were told both of them were possible. Uh, I, we knew two spellings for the word show. It was sometimes with an E in it, S-H-E-W, and sometimes with an O, S-H-O-W. It's all gone. It's a great improvement. Things do change. What we have in English is a terribly, terribly, terribly slow process of change of our spelling. All I'm really arguing for is speeding this up a bit, because it seems to me it would make sense. Well, things we could do straight away are to relax a bit and admit some alternative spellings. We've already got this. We've got various words that we allow people to spell in more than one way. Nobody gets excited, really, if you spell organised with an S or with a Z. I mean, if you're writing for a particular publisher or a particular newspaper, they will no doubt have a house style and you have to conform to it. My first publishers were ones who required a Z, so that's what I got in the habit of doing and I always write a Z. Americans uh, often believe that British spelling requires an S. I had one uh, article that I submitted to a journal in the United States uh, which had the rule that authors must use their, use their own spelling. So if they're British, they must use British spelling. American, they use American spelling. Fair enough. But they then went through my article changing, well, not all of the Zs, but some of the Zs to Ss or Zs as they would have seen them to Ss. And I had to go back and I say, no, I'm sorry, I write organised with a Z and I'd like to continue to do so if you want me to use my own spelling. Nonsense. Uh, well, then it gets a bit trickier when we have things like Coca-Cola Light, Nightclub, N-I-T-E, Through Traffic, S-T-H-R-U. People get a bit worried about this, but I really don't think it's the end of the world if we allow these alongside the existing spellings. I also feel pretty relaxed about American spellings in general. Um, when I started writing uh, computer programs, or HTML at any rate for web pages, I quickly had to be accustomed to spelling colour, C-O-L-O-R, and centre, C-E-N-T-E-R, because otherwise my programs didn't work, because they were written by Americans and uh, they expected American spelling. Uh, so uh, I don't think we should get uptight if children use American spellings or, you know, condemn Sesame Street, shall we say, because uh, that's what it goes for. I mean, it's already the case that the Australians and the Canadians are in a bit of a mixed situation because they sometimes use British and sometimes use American spellings. So let's just be more relaxed about these things. Right, some general points. Letters and sounds. This is something that is, in a sense, terribly elementary and basic, but in my experience, it's something that people sometimes find it a bit difficult to get their heads around. Letters are visible. They are marks. Marks on paper, marks on a screen. You can't hear letters, you can't say letters. Sounds, on the other hand, are audible. They're things you can hear. You can't write them down, but you can hear them. You can transmit them using a microphone and a loudspeaker, send them down a telephone line. Down a computer connection, you could do either. You can send letters, which will then appear as letters on a screen, 
Or you can send a sound file, which you'll have to play aloud. But they're different from one another. And when children learn to read, what they're essentially doing is establishing a relationship between letters, which are something new they're learning at school, or from their parents, and sounds, which are things they know already, because from their earliest age they've been surrounded by sounds, and by the time they get to the age of two or thereabouts, they are starting to use sounds and certainly to react to sounds of language from other people. So when, at age four or five or six or seven, whenever it is that you start to learn to read, what you've got to do is to get, your, get an understanding of these new things, these marks called letters, and how they relate to the sounds that you know about. And there are two sides to this. Learning to read means you've got written material in front of you, you've got letters which you look at, and you've got to decode them, that is, convert them back into the sounds that they represent. And in computerese nowadays, this is known as the text-to-speech problem. But you also have to learn to spell, which means you have to encode the sounds that you're familiar with and learn how to write them with these new letter things that you're learning. For computerese, that's the speech-to-text problem. And, of course, ideally, we would have a situation where there was a one-to-one relationship between letters and sounds. Then, when children learn the letters, they just have to learn which sound each letter represents, and they know how to say anything they can see written down, once they know the letters, and they know how to write down anything they know how to say. And this is what lies behind the general approach to reading known as phonics. Uh, You may have seen recently some talk in the papers about synthetic phonics as being the answer to all our problems of teaching reading. Well, this is the age-old method, really, where you learn the letters, you learn that the letter C is K, K, or K. You learn that the letter A is A, 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 and you learn that the letter T is T, T, T. Then you go at, and you make cat, and you read lovely sentences like cat sat on mat. Now, why have I left out the? Because it's no use saying t, eh, and thinking that's going to turn into the, because it doesn't. Because in English, straightforward synthetic phonics won't work. Well, it works for some words, but not for others, and not for a lot of very common words. So this has always been supplemented by what's called the whole word method, where you just take a picture of the whole word and you say, okay, this thing means the. I know it's written with a T and an H and an E, but you must just learn it as a single gestalt, a single solid item, which we don't analyse any further, and it means the whole word method. And it's very clear that for English in its ordinary spelling that we use today, you've got to have a combination of these two things. And over the years, it seems to me that in primary education, the teaching of reading, there's been a kind of pendulum that swings backwards and forwards from one to the other. One year, it's phonics that's the great solution. Next year, it's whole word, uh, real books methods. And um, I think we need both of these, because of the nature of English spelling. It's clear that phonics is an excellent way of starting, 
but it won't take you the whole way. We've got all these common words like the, yes, and night. Well, it's no use going along with nigt and thinking that's night. You've got to learn that, uh, at the very least, you've got to learn that I-G-H is a block that means I, and you can't analyse it any further. There's an interesting point in words like farmer. Uh, I put that example in, seeing as I'm in the west of England, whereas there are people here who would say farmer for it. And if there's an er present there, farmer, this is a perfectly logical spelling. But for people like me who say farmer, with no R sounds at all, it's not. I've got to learn off by heart to write these R's in the spelling, and I just ignore them when I'm pronouncing I don't say farmer, I say farmer. And so this brings us up to the general point that our spelling has to cope with the fact that different people speak English in different ways and pronounce it differently. So you can have a look there and see what you think about those four words. Do they all rhyme or not? Yes, they do for me. Short, sport, court, thought. Do they rhyme for everybody? No. Obviously, anybody who pronounces an R has got short and sport with an R in it and caught and thought without one. So, in a typical American pronunciation, short, sport, caught, thought, we've got two different groups. Uh, does everybody make caught and thought rhyme? The last two? Yes, they do. Even though the spelling is different, the sound is the same, I think, for everybody. What about short and sport? Do they rhyme for everybody? Not if you're Scottish. Short, sport. Short, sport, short, sport for most Scots. Not if you're West Indian. If you're Jamaican, shat. In that language, shat. Maple sport. Sport, shat, sport. Historically, those are different vowels, and in various, shall we say, outlying kinds of English, They've retained the contrast, which we have lost in sort of central English here. So the Scots have retained the historical difference, the West Indians, and some Americans and people in South Wales and various other places have retained this difference, which is not shown in spelling. Which is a useful reminder that when we speak, we are not saying the letters aloud because they wouldn't know which ones to take which way. You wouldn't know. Think about the word separate, separately, and the verb to separate, to separate things away from one another. Separate and separate are spelt in the same way. But you, as speakers of English, at least if you're native speakers of English, you know to pronounce them differently. You're not saying the letters aloud, you're bringing out the knowledge of phonetics that's in your head, part of your knowledge of the language. That's what we mean by saying that the speech is primary. Well, would changing the spelling then, would it mean changing the language? No, my point is it wouldn't mean changing the language, it means changing the writing system. And we do still, despite our funny spelling, have other ways of representing language in written form. We can use shorthand. Again, not many people nowadays know shorthand, but it's one of the things I taught myself when I was a teenager. 
another way of writing things. And both Pittman shorthand and Greg shorthand uh, reflect the pronunciation very much more closely than ordinary spelling does. Uh, I teach my students to do phonetic transcription, and this is a very important thing to bring to people's awareness the differences between speech and writing. For those studying foreign languages, it's a very good way to learn the pronunciation of the foreign language. Nevertheless, changing this spelling system does seem threatening to many people. There's no doubt, no doubt about that. People, because if, if you're literate, if you know how to read and write, you have, in a sense, invested a lot of intellectual capital in acquiring this knowledge, in learning how to spell. And so any change can be seen as threatening that knowledge, that investment that you've made and devaluing that investment. I mean, we've just had to face the fact that we've lost our investment in uh, pre-decimal money. But uh, there we are. We don't want to lose any more of it. Against that, it has to be said that the present system does contribute to the functional illiteracy, as they say, of a considerable proportion of school leavers. And so we have these adults who can't be sure of writing correctly and are not entirely confident of their spelling. Now, this is just an example of three foreign languages. You will immediately recognise what foreign languages they are to show you that it doesn't have to be like that. Because in each of these cases, if you know the reading rules for the foreign language, you can, with confidence, pronounce them aloud. So what's the top language we've got here? Kalevalam siseltemet runot evet what language is that? Finnish. Finnish, right, yes. I don't know Finnish, but I think I got that more or less correctly. Have we got anybody here who speaks Finnish? No, okay, I'm safe. Su padre de ascendencia cordobesa y de antepasados gallegos se llamaba Rodrigo. Spanish. Anybody speak Spanish? Yes, I'm sure some do. I don't, but I know the reading rules. Mikołaj Mitkiewicz był pierwszą w rodzie Mitkiewiczów osobą wyształconą. It's tricky, isn't it? But you get there if you know the rules. That, of course, is Polish. Right. In each of these languages, then, you have a writing system where there are certain little tiny problems, but in general, there's a regular correspondence between spelling and pronunciation. So that children in school... They learn how to spell. It's the same as learning how to read. And once they've done that, they've done that. Spelling tests? What for? Spelling competitions? Why? Everybody can get this perfect. And so those things that we have in English are not necessary. And that would be the case for reforming our spelling. Reforms do come up against the problem of what I call the I-dialect uh, problem. This is that we do have sort of conventions that if you use logical spellings like W-O-T for what or W-O-Z for was, this is a kind of signal that the person into whose mouth you put this is illiterate. It doesn't actually imply any different pronunciation from the one we all use. It doesn't mean that you're saying anything other than what for what. So it's just I dialect. It's not actually spoken dialect at all. And so spelling things logically tends to be seen or tends to incur the charge of dumbing down unfairly. 
And yes, we've got to mention uh, <coughs> another thing that gets people very worried recently, and that's the matter of texting, uh, where you write things like, see you in five minutes, love. Uh, this is great fun. I don't think it's anything to worry at all about myself. It's actually what the Victorians called rebus. They used to have lovely rebus puzzles. I had a whole book of them. You know, it was 50, 70 years old when I was a boy, and it must be over 100 years old now, full of this kind of puzzle where CU has to be interpreted as meaning CU. So I can't see that this actually fogs your brain or destroys literacy or makes teenagers unable to communicate or wrecks our language. It's a kind of game. And... All right, people have to learn the stylistic rules that it, what's appropriate in a text message is inappropriate in a classroom essay. But, yeah, people can do that. And uh, I refer you to David Crystal's book, uh, Texting the Great Debate, which uh, is a very sober look at all of this, based on facts and really showing that getting excited and upset about this in the way that... Uh, John Humphreys did, is uh, unnecessary. I can see this as a kind of do-it-yourself spelling reform. It allows people to make their own decisions about how to write things. And if you like, if you want to spell things in a different way, well, in texting you're allowed to. And so, yes, perhaps our teenagers are saying, it's time to change things, and this is what I want to do. <clears throat> Let's look at the children in the primary school and why things are tricky for them. One of the rules in English, it's an illogical rule, but okay, you, you can learn it and then it applies reasonably well, is you use the letter E to signal a long vowel sound. You don't actually pronounce it itself, but you learn that hop is hop and hope with the E on the end is hope and rid and ride and man and main and mud and rude. And that's a nice productive rule, which... Okay, we can cope with that. It's not too difficult. But then, you see, the trouble is, if you're learning to read, you immediately come up against words of high frequency, like have, compare save and grave and wave and so on. Why do we have an E on the end of have? It's not have. Give, well, we've got drive and arrive. Why isn't it give? Well, it isn't. It's give. Why has it got an E on it? I don't know. Come, it looks like home. So why, why has it got an E? I don't know. And then there are ridiculous things like L-I-V-E, which we use both for live, where do you live, and live, as in a live broadcast. Ridiculous. Why don't we use the E to distinguish between the two of them? And there are lots of uh, silent letters. Of course, the first thing that spelling reformers tend to jump on is the silent letters, say, well, let's get rid of the B in debt. It was only introduced after the word had been in the language for several, several hundred years. Spelling reformers of their day, who thought etymology was very important and were aware of Latin, uh, debit and so on, debitum, uh, said we ought to have a B in it, likewise in doubt and likewise in Island, where it's actually not really etymological because it doesn't come from Latin insula. We've got letters L that we don't pronounce in could and walk and salmon. My problem here is foreign learners of English. I have master students who believe that could is pronounced with an L in it and think it's said cold. 
And, well, it isn't, of course, but it's only the spelling that could ever give them the idea that it was, because in no kind of English is it pronounced with an L, nor has it been for 500,000 years. The unnecessary W's in right and wrong, the K's and G's in knife and gnaw, nobody pronounces them. What's that A doing in leather or head? What's the I doing in friend? Not even etymological, you see. Aha, people say, people like Chomsky. Well, you see, in sign, that's terribly important because you've got to show that it's related to signature. Aha, that's why it's got a GN in it. Phlegm, we all know that's related to phlegmatic, don't we? Mortgage, well, yes, you see, that's a a dead gauge, a challenge to someone. Yeah, right. (laughs) Delight. Why has delight got a GH in it? Because someone made a mistake about the etymology. This, in fact, doesn't justify... uh, You can't justify this one by any kind of history. It it isn't a Germanic Licht kind of thing. It's it's French, and in French it doesn't have a a GH. Uh, The W in white is a silent letter for most of us. Not, of course, for everybody, because some people do say white. Uh, And likewise, the R in harm we've talked about already. Okay, back to the problem of illogicality. It's another rule of English which you can justify and say, okay, we can live with this. It's found in German and in Dutch and various other languages, Germanic languages, doubling a consonant to show a short vowel. So hoping, no silent E here, but the single P tells you it's O, hoping we double the P in hopping to show it's O. Diner, dinner, baked and backed CK counts for double, double K. Well, yes, but then immediately you come up against these problems. You see, driver, right. River, well, looks as if it ought to be river. Evil, devil, looks as if it ought to be devil. Open, proper, or is that proper? Judy, study, looks like studi or studi. So uh, there are inconsistencies here which provide a problem both of interpreting written English, particularly for foreign learners, knowing what the pronunciation is, and of spelling, particularly for native speakers, to know how to write properly with one P and not two proper. Yeah, cabbage, cabin, teddy, steady, poppy, copy. Just uh, check out that you yourself know how to spell harass and embarrass and accommodate. I'm sure everybody in this audience does, but, uh, well, we know that not everybody does, and that's how they should be, of course. Other inconsistencies and uh, irregularities, the letters E-A, different sounds in tea, teach, meat, bread, head, heavy, break, great, steak, same spelling, different sounds. You're not saying letters aloud when you speak, because if you were, you'd say them all the same way. Fear near here, bear, pair, wear, breath and breathe. Hmm. Read today, but I read it yesterday. And of course, I've just come by train through Reading, which looks awfully like a reading scheme. CH spelling, ch in chip, chair, rich, church, reach, but sh in machine, cash, chalet, and moustache. K in chemistry, ache, mechanical, chaos. And, uh, well, people do sometimes get confused about archbishops on the one hand and archangels 
on the other, because it's the same spelling but different pronunciations. Very difficult. Well, yes, if we want to reform things, we've got to cater for all accents, so we can change water like that, but I wouldn't recommend changing laughter to double AF because there are millions, hundreds of millions who say laughter or laughter, and uh, for whom it's then inappropriate. That's from a, a serious proposal uh, that we come to in a minute, not long left. Okay, court and court, same for me, different for lots of people. Stalk and stalk, same for me, different for lots of people. Soap and rope, ah, they rhyme for everyone. Uh, The chairman kindly mentioned at the beginning that actually I made my scholarly name out of a three-volume work called Accents of English, in which I took all of the different native speaker varieties of English and compared the pronunciations of all of them. And so I'm pretty much aware of what is the same or not the same in different kinds of English. And as far as I'm aware, always subject to somebody saying, oh, I believe it to be the case that soap and rope rhyme for everyone, but we spell them differently. Likewise, everybody makes the two knights the same, I think. Not quite everybody makes the two no's the same. There are millions of adults who get worried and confused about which no you write with a K and which one you don't. And likewise with eight and eight, or is it et and eight? Some of us pronounce them differently anyhow. Another thing that Chomsky and linguists often say is, ah, our spelling is super because it shows you the morphology. It shows the relationship between electric and electrician, logic and logician, and so on. You keep the same spelling of C in it. Anatomy, anatomical. Well, the vowels all change in pronunciation. Anatomy, anatomical. But the spelling is the same. Analyze, analytic, analysis, vowels all change. Very complicated for foreign learners, but, uh, well, there's no difference really in writing. Why do we have different spellings in speak and speech? Nobody knows. Uh, Deceive, deceit, deception, deceptive. If you really believe in etymology, you probably ought to put P's in all of those. They all come from Latin compounds of Cipio, Keptum. And there's absolutely no justification at all for having a P in receipt, but not in deceit because they're absolutely parallel etymologies, absolutely parallel morphologies. So that is a nonsense. I think we'd better jump on. Uh, Just talk about one or two proposals. Webster, of dictionary fame, the American, uh, he did introduce, of course, a number of reforms, which is why the Americans do spell a whole lot of words differently from us. But he made a, a whole lot of later proposals which were not taken up. Uh, he wanted us to spell granite without an E on the end, and relative, and words like that, and crumb without a B on the end, an island like that, and thread with no A. Much more th- root and branch proposal was so-called New Spelling by Ripman and Archer, 1948. This was the sort of officially approved uh, scheme for the Simplified Spelling Society, to which my predecessor but one, Professor Daniel Jones, He was the president of it, and uh, I sort of, in a way, I'm afraid, inherited my post as president of the Spelling Society because it somehow has become associated with the professorship of phonetics at UCL. Uh, (coughs) Jones's successor, Gimson, took over from him, and uh, I took over from Gimson. Uh, A much more uh, restricted gradualist 
approach is that of Vake in 1959, where he just wanted to fiddle around the edges with our, of our spelling so as to, for example, spell English with the letter I, not the letter E, because that's how we, how we pronounce it. Much more acceptable, and the vast number of words remain with the same spelling as they have now. Another much more radical thing was Shaw, George Bernard Shaw, left a large amount of money in his will for not just a new spelling, but a new alphabet. And, uh, well, there was a competition held, and uh, Androcles and the Lion was published in this new Shaw alphabet, which is, you know, it looks like shorthand or Ethiopian or Armenian or something quite different from the Latin alphabet. Uh, some of you may have come across the initial teaching alphabet, which was a reading scheme, a transitional reading scheme. But I think we can finish just by mentioning experiences in other languages to tell you that it's not impossible to change things. Russian abolished several letters uh, in the, when the revolution came. Tsarist letters removed. Lots of hard signs taken out of spellings of words. Turkish made the absolutely drastic change from the Arabic alphabet, right to left, to the Latin alphabet, left to right, in 1928. Uh, a whole lot of... Uh, Turkic languages in Central Asia had a triple switch or even quadruple. They switched from Arabic into Latin when the Turks did, but then because they were part of the Soviet Union, they had to switch to Cyrillic. Then when the Soviet Union collapsed, they switched back to Latin in some cases. So it's possible not just to change the spelling of words, but to change the entire writing system. I don't think I want to recommend that, though. Uh, the Germans, well, they uh, dropped that sort of very formal kind of uh, known as fraktur writing system they used to have. We sometimes have something similar for titles of newspapers and whatnot still. Uh, but they've also had uh, some very controversial Rechtschreibungsreform uh, just recently where they've changed the rules about SZ and about word spaces and about commas and various other things. It's caused enormous controversy in Germany, but it's gone through and uh, now you're supposed to abide by it. So I have to, remi- I have to remember every time I write das, when I, I say ich glaube das, this and that, I've got to write D-A-S-S and not D-A-S-Z, as I did when I was a boy. The Dutch have had minor spelling reforms in 47 and 95. The Danish, they, for example, abolished capitals on nouns, which the Germans still have, and introduced a new letter in 1948, the A with the circle on it. So it's possible. The Spelling Society, then, I just have to mention this, it has the aim of raising awareness of the problems caused by the irregularity of English spelling and to promote remedies to improve literacy. So that's what I've been trying to do with you today. There's a website called spellingsociety.org and three interesting books. Uh, One about called Understanding English Spelling by Masha Bell, Uh, who is a very keen reformer. Interesting woman because she grew up speaking German and Lithuanian, educated in those two languages, and then in Russian, and then finally came to England 
as an adult, speaks absolutely accent-free English. I mean, she's clearly an excellent linguist. And she's got a good outsider's view, then, on our spelling system. And she knows the language very thoroughly. Uh, Carney's book is the great reference if you want to look at great lists of all the words that have the GH spelling, meaning F or whatever you want. Uh, I knew Ted Carney. He was a lecturer in phonetics. He never got promoted throughout his life because he was busy writing this book. When he retired, finally... The book came out. It was brilliant. Everybody said, how marvellous. If it had come out 20 years earlier, he'd have been professor. You know, um, that's a tragedy. He's dead now. Uh, I managed these things a little bit better. I did become professor. And there's my most recent uh, work, the Longman Pronunciation Dictionary, third edition, which has just come out. And that's it. Thank you all very much.